This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. The U.S. Justice Department has filed charges against tech giant Huawei, alleging they have, amongst other things, violated the Iran sanctions, stolen industrial secrets of American carrier T-Mobile, and obstructed, obstructed excuse me, a criminal investigation. The Chinese telecom is the biggest supplier of phone and Internet network equipment in the world and the second biggest cell phone producer. The indictments come two months after Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou, who is also the daughter of the company's founder was arrested in Canada. China's foreign ministry yesterday called on the U.S. and Canada to to release Meng. The timing is notable as top officials from China are holding two days of trade talks with the Trump administration in Washington starting today. So how will all of this play out? Jacques Talil, professor of law and professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania, joining us here in studio. He's also director of the Center for East Asian Studies and deputy director of the Center for the Study of Contemporary China. Also joining us on the phone, Richard Dasher, director of the U.S. Asia Technology Management Center at Stanford University. Jacques, great seeing you. Thanks good for coming in. Good to be back. Richard, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me on. All right, so Jacques, take us through this process, if you can, for a little bit. These charges coming out by the U.S. government. What will the process be uh, as we move down the line here? Well, there are a few interconnected things here. Uh, some of this, uh, as an underlying matter, stems from the same thing that led to the detention of uh, Meng Wanzhou, the CFO of Huawei in Canada. Uh, it's related to those charges. But basically, we have two buckets of issues. One is related to sanctions evasion, the idea that Huawei has a subsidiary or a related company um, that Huawei insisted it was separate from, but in fact, the allegations are it remained deeply interconnected with, including through Mung's uh, presence uh, in both companies, uh, that this company was, in, in effect, selling U.S. telecommunications equipment and technology to Iran in violation of the sanctions, and that that there was uh, an effort to mislead banks uh, into thinking that Huawei was not involved and therefore not at risk for sanctions when, in fact, it was an affiliated company. And when you get into lying about something like that, uh, it quickly leads to the related charges of money laundering, obstruction of justice, things like that. Uh, and so there's that action, which is now attributed to the company as a whole and not yeah. just to Monk. Right. The other package has to do with the almost comical story of Tappy the Robot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. This is a great story. So go ahead. So Tappy the Robot <laughs> is, is T-Mobile technology. And apparently yes. it's a robot that can tap phone screens really quickly, which is a great way of testing phones. Uh, Huawei wanted to have this because it's now the world's number two handset maker and and didn't have that technology. So it had kind of a cooperative agreement with T-Mobile. But Huawei people apparently in the T-Mobile factory were carefully measuring Tappy and at one point even took away an arm (laughs) to try and replicate it. Um, So this is IP theft. This is you know, a clear and and as obvious as you can get. Right. Now, of course, Huawei is saying, you know, they weren't directed to do this it's on their own and all that. The company is not responsible and there's going to be disputes over facts. But basically, this is a particularly kind of in your face and, yeah. as we say, somewhat comic example yeah. of the allegations of IPR theft. And with that comes the possibility of significant damages. U.S. law allows for treble damages, three times the actual harm or five million dollars. So that's that's big money. And we'd seen this particular incident before because it was the object of a civil suit. 
uh, a sort of damages claim by T-Mobile against against Huawei. Uh, and of course, once again, once you're into the initial theft claim, uh, the charges quickly pile up on top of that of obstruction of justice and wire fraud and all the other things you do around uh, this kind of event. But the, the two things that lead to it basically are the Iran sanctions evasion and particularly lying to banks about the relationship of Huawei to the company that was doing it and this thing about IPR theft uh, from T-Mobile. Well, uh, Richard, the the I'll, I'll start with the Tappy the Robot part of this story because I think it's the fun part of this, but it is a serious concern is that it has been thought throughout the the entire process, and many times when we've had you both on on the air about the problems of intellectual uh, property theft by entities within China, and this seemingly is a is a it, it appears from a lot of the reports a pretty blatant example of what was going on. Well, there were certainly a lot of details that came out in these indictments, uh, and I think that. Probably the point is that neither one of these types of uh, charges, the uh, whether it's the violation of sanctions or the theft of intellectual property, are really new kinds of charges. I think a lot of people were probably not that surprised. So then why then now do you think that these charges are being brought forward? Well, after arresting uh, Ms. Meng, they kind of had to uh, make good on the indictment charges or they would really have no case for uh, extraditing her to the U.S. So there was that. But you do have to wonder if it was timed to uh, fit the visit to uh, Washington by um, Vice Premier Liu, who is here this week to uh, try to uh, bring something back home to China for uh, the trade deal because um, President Trump had postponed implementing the 25% tariffs that had been talked about last year. And so that hasn't hit yet. Uh, And I think they would like to avoid that happening. Uh, Let me ask you this, Jacques, the role of Canada in this process, because it was Canada that actually did the first arrest. And and so how much of this do you think was simply a request by the U.S. government? Or how much does Canada feel like they have a stake in, in this problem as well? Yeah, I'm reminded of the old South Park song, Blame Canada, right? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. the, the timing thing, you know, there's an innocent story and a sort of conspiracy story. The the innocent story is this just sort of happened accidentally. That is, uh, the U.S. wanted to get Hmong because of all these longstanding concerns about the Iran sanctions and other things. And she happened to pass through the Vancouver airport at a moment when the U.S. could ask Canada, which has a good extradition relationship with the U.S., to seize her. Um, and that coincided with the Buenos Aires meeting, and so we had this this kind of um, discussion about whether that was linked, sure. whether it was just coincidental. The other thing that happens, though, once she's taken into custody, as she was, once she's arrested, the clock starts ticking on the extradition process, and the U.S. is now hard up against the uh, the deadline for filing an extradition request, and that happens to coincide with Leo Ho's visit. You know, the official line from the U.S. government, from Mnuchin and Ross, is, oh, these are on two separate tracks, the the Huawei indictments are a DOJ thing about yeah. longstanding concerns that have nothing to do with the trade war particularly. And then there's the trade war issues. Does anybody really buy that? You know, I don't think anybody buys that they're truly separate. The Chinese certainly don't regard them as separate as the timing. I think, you know, you can take either view. But the politics of the situation are that for China, these are deeply linked. And for the U.S., they're also linked as a possible point of leverage. And, and honestly, Richard, it makes me think sitting back and looking at these entities uh, of whether or not somehow – uh, what has been brought forward against Huawei could be some level of a bargaining chip for the U.S. government in these trade negotiations that are going on right now. 
Well, uh, it could be, but I think that uh, the nature of the allegations have to do with criminal behavior and also uh, with, you know, things that threaten the security of the United States. Right. Uh, that's right. the whole point of, you know, why the violations of the sanctions against Iran are such a big deal. Uh, that, you know, I, I personally don't think that you should trade that for um, increases in exports. I mean, it's true that the uh, trade um, discussions have already significantly reduced the amount of American exports to China. Last year dropped to the lowest year, the lowest in um, really the last nine years. And so, um, you know, it is having an effect. But this is security and this is law, and I think that uh, it should not be used too much as a bargaining chip. Okay. Now, of course, the Chinese say that we're singling them out unfairly. Shock. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, you know the Trump administration has taken a fair amount of criticism for drawing linkages between security and trade. The idea you can trade off, and right. you know, for people who are kind of in this uh, corner of policy and law, the idea is pretty much anathema that you would trade off a genuine national security concern, which the Iran sanctions are meant to address, and which uh, some of the concerns about uh, buying Huawei equipment because of the risk of backdoors and, and uh, Chinese espionage gain, possibly gaining access, which is you know, a legitimate security concern. We can talk about how um, how much that might be overblown or, or, or not, but but that certainly is the statement that to trade those off against the pure trade issues, I think, is regarded rightly as deeply problematic. The problem here in terms of the politics of this is twofold. One is there is this gray area of intellectual property theft. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, of the prospect of trapdoors and so on, uh, that is partly a national security issue, um, national economic security certainly, and then the, the spying potential is, is certainly a national security issue that we're focused on. Uh, but that gets tangled up with this notion of uh, the Chinese argument that this is American protectionism, that this is using national security issues as a pretext for keeping Huawei out of uh, the very competitive position it would be in economically in building right. the 5G network. So it's very hard to disentangle those. And in China, the nationalistic impulse is very easy to gin up and indeed hard to resist. It says this is about keeping China down economically. So you get this kind of conflation of issues that, that makes the politics of it very messy. So let me ask you a question from the perspective of, of probably some American citizens right now, because as we have talked about, Jacques, this concern over intellectual property theft has been there for for quite some time where China has been concerned. The question I think a lot of people would ask is, why hasn't it been tackled in the past? Has prior trade relations between the U.S. and China kind of stood in the way of that? Why now, in your opinion? I mean, I think there are a bunch of things going on. It has been a steadily mounting issue. Um, and the scale of intellectual property leakage to China has gone up considerably over time, and it's obviously an ever more important part of the American economy. Some of it's just sort of the drip, drip, drip. Um, I think you saw an attempt to strike a deal to uh, take more aggressive steps against it uh, under the Obama administration, the Obama-Xi agreement, and there's been disappointment with how well that's played out. Uh, There is a deepened suspicion, I think, under the Trump administration that uh, even if you strike a deal with China, it may not be implemented. And that's one of the concerns hanging over these talks that were already 
you know, a couple of years into this process, and we've got a couple of years to go before the next election, is the possibility that China will agree to things that it won't then enforce. Right. Uh, and there's been more of a focus increasingly on this, um, this coerced transfer, not outright theft, but if you want to do business in China, you've got to license your technology. So there's been a sort of ratcheting up of the sense of things going to China. There's a sense that China is emerging as a formidable competitor. Uh, in IP-intensive goods, there's the sense also of China's industrial policy under Xi Jinping, which has identified industrial policy goals of making China dominant in a lot of technology sectors. So all that's come together on the Chinese side. That is, there is more of a concern about Chinese power in IP-intensive areas garnered legitimately or not. And there's a sense of U.S. vulnerability, a sense of U.S. distrust of China. And, and it's yeah. not just the Trump administration. There's been a real sea change in this uh, consensus among sort of policy-relevant people in the U.S. who are pro-engagement now saying, yeah, this isn't really working so well. Yeah. The, the other part to this, Richard, which uh, came out in, in at least one article that I saw recently, uh, mentions also the fact that Mrs. Meng, uh, Ms. Meng was also detained a couple of years ago at Kennedy Airport for a couple of hours, and her devices were looked at. So this is somebody that has been on the radar of the U.S. government and probably several governments for quite some time. Oh, yes. And in fact, if you look at the charges, they go all the way back to uh, things that were done in 2007. So uh, they definitely have been looking at Huawei for a long time. That's not news to anybody out here in the Valley. The U.S. uh, really put a sanction against uh, buying any Huawei equipment back in 2014. And so, you know, this this has been building up with Huawei for a long time. Uh, I think that a lot of the things that's different now is the way that public opinion is being used uh, as a bargaining chip in this. As uh, Jacques mentioned, uh, it's really easy to set off nationalist uh, sentiment in both places, and especially in China, if you get some uh, bad press about how the U.S. is unfair to Chinese companies, then uh, people stop buying American products. So go ahead, John. I'd say the phrase I think the that was used by a Chinese spokesman, a government spokesman, was hysterical persecution of Huawei. I mean, it's yeah, yeah. Well, and, and that's and that's the other part is is this expectation by China that the U.S. is being uh, more unfair to them than they probably should. When you hear that statement, you say what? <laughs> well, you know, the question is, what's the appropriate level of... of La- laughing wasn't right. what I expected, right. but, but yes, I, I mean, agree, you know, yeah. How yeah. unfair should you be kind of is an interesting question, right? Yeah. If the U.S. position is this isn't unfair, this is dealing with, with Chinese exactly. unfairness. Yeah. And after my usual disclosure here, I've done some expert witness work for Huawei, and you know, not in this particular context. Uh, but one of the things, and this is you know, not to reveal anything confidential, but one of the things that, that they insist in all contexts is that they are a company that is out to make profit. Uh, and that yep. they are you know, not yep. owned by the government and all that sort of thing. And, of course, you know, that's debatable. And, and large Chinese companies that are national champions the way Huawei uh, is certainly do have a, a degree of connection to the government, a degree of, of support from the government. But where do these lines uh, get crossed? You know, that's that's something that I think this investigation is going to look into. And, and to get back to Richard's broader point about the IP issues, it, that there are allegations on the Iran sanction side that go back to 2007. And there are allegations on the IP theft side that there was an internal company policy yeah. of rewarding people for stealing stuff. So a lot of the stuff has been looming out there. But you do see this, this uh, tendency to escalate. So there's a bill in Congress now that would essentially replicate what Trump briefly did against ZTE, uh, which is one of Huawei's rivals in the same same field, uh, where it was basically a kill the company. You can't export U.S. technology or telecommunications technology to these companies. And we've now got this interlinked process where uh, each side is is claiming 
um, that the other side is treating it unfairly and threatening to do things that will be really quite costly and disruptive. How, Richard, how important does this case become for Huawei, especially now with its growth and its potential role that it uh, wants to have in the rollout of 5G around the world? Oh, I think this is potentially an existential threat. Uh, I think that um, not only what the United States decides to do, quite a few U.S. allies have followed suit and stopped allowing Huawei to supply network equipment to government projects. And this has ramped up in the last year. Um, There were some noticeable announcements right after the arrest of Mrs. Ms. Meng. And so uh, I think that this is a big deal for them. Uh, I think that... um, it will be interesting to see whether the Chinese uh, press really picks up on this in a big way, this last set of indictments, or whether they just sort of do the posturing that you would have to do, deny the allegations, accuse the U.S. of, of smearing Chinese companies and so forth. Uh, if um, it really gets to the point where um, it becomes very difficult to do business in China. You've got riots, you know, busting up the fences around U.S. factories in China and so forth. If that should happen, then um, you'll have a real movement away from China. Um, That hasn't really happened yet. A lot of American companies are still keeping most of their supply chains in China, but they're investigating other options. Yeah, I think we do have to watch for the next steps of escalation. I mean, the question is going to be what's in these indictments and, and what exactly comes out of that process, uh, what the U.S. decides to do about Hmong, and how long it takes to get her out of Canada, which may, you know, it could take years. And the Canadian extradition process, you know, the U.S. is up against the 60-day deadline, but then there's a court hearing, and you can appeal from that, and the Minister of Justice has to decide, and you have to have findings about the strength of the evidence and whether the charges would warrant criminal prosecution in Canada. So that could be a while. And there's also the possibility uh, that maybe Ren Zhengfei, the head of Huawei, uh, the founder of Huawei, could uh, himself face indictment. Uh, there's a question about statements made to the FBI, which the FBI regards as as inaccurate. Right. Um, so there's a lot going on here, and it's going to get very complicated because it's easy to paint this as a how hard is the U.S. going to hit this entity that is Huawei and China bundled together, which is yep. certainly the politics, the way it's being discussed. I mean, yeah. you get people like Senator Warner, I think, saying you know, there's no Chinese company that's independent of the government. And that's just hyperbole and an overstatement. But you've also got people on the U.S. side, some of whom um, are I'm sure you know, many legitimately concerned about whatever national security issues this raises, and we've talked about those, but you've also got companies that see opportunities by keeping Huawei out of the market, and you've also got those who are building 5G networks who are worried about the cost of shifting away from Huawei. Sure. So I yeah. think we've only begun to see the sort of political economy these issues play out. One thing you mentioned, though, I, I, I want to touch back on, and it goes back with, with Canada, is that uh, the expectation of extraditing Ms. Meng to the United States is based on whether or not charges would be brought in Canada, correct? Pretty close. So the the U.S.-Canada extradition treaty, and obviously the U.S. and Canada, despite some of the frictions between Trudeau and Trump, it remain uh, quite close allies. And we do have an extradition treaty, and it has a fairly common provision in extradition treaties which says that a precondition to extraditing somebody is that the charges against that person would be charges under Canadian law. That is, right. they have to have the so-called double criminality. They won't export 
uh, they want to extradite someone who who was tr- accused of something that would not be a crime in Canada. Right. And then there's a sort of you know, level of evidence, credibility type question. And the Canadian courts will handle that by applying Canadian law. And it goes right. up to the Minister of Justice, who has a fair amount of discretion, but it's also a pretty law-governed process. And part of that is because Mrs. Meng has a residence or lives in Vancouver, from what I understand. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure if she's uh, what her exact status is in Canada, but they can get her just for being there, which is what they got True. going through the airport. Right. Um, and so, yeah, the the kinds of activity that the U.S. is going after here, if the if the charges are uh, as as made, would certainly be the kind of thing over which U.S. courts would have jurisdiction, evading the sanctions and so on. Uh, and uh, I think we, it remains to be seen how this plays out in, in Canada, but that sort of thing typically would be a crime there too. All right. So in the last few minutes, uh, Richard, I also want to touch on on the act negotiations that are going on uh, this week in Washington, D.C., and and I don't think there's an expectation that we would see any kind of finalized deal coming out of these next uh, 48 hours. That being said, uh, if you go by, and you mentioned this before, if you go by the self-imposed clock basically put into play by President Trump, we are getting a lot closer to that, and I think the expectation is, is that you would like to see some sort of significant movement on trade between these two sides, at least in the in the fairly short term. Yes, uh, and I expect you'll see some sort of promise for overall reduction in the trade deficit um, that may later have very good reasons why it can't be achieved. Um, yeah. I do think that uh, this is one in which both governments are going to try to put forward their side and their interests, and I don't see a whole lot happening this week. Jacques? I think that's right. I don't think you get a resolution. I think it was always unlikely uh, when the Ocha came to visit and we'll have a meeting with Trump himself uh, that you get a big breakthrough here. I, I think the most likely outcome is that we'll get something announced that justifies kicking the can down the road a bit further and at least not going whole hog with the $250 billion in imports or $200 billion in imports being hit with much higher tariffs. Uh, so it'll get us beyond March 2nd. Um, what exactly that will look like? I mean, I think the view in China has been that Trump has been heavily concerned with a bilateral trade deficit. So if you go on a bit of a buying spree, you might be able to get enough to satisfy him. Lighthizer in particular is uh, focused by all accounts much more on the issues of intellectual property, theft on market access, intellectual property course transfers, those sorts of things. So he's less likely to be satisfied with that. There's a little reporting this morning that he seems to have persuaded Trump. But, you know, how desperately does Trump want to win? The Chinese view is they'll give as little as they have to to get a deal to avoid um, further sanctions. But it's also uh, it's also the combination of not only Lighthizer, but also Peter Navarro, I believe, is is in this mix as well. And he brings, obviously, a, a totally different component to uh, to trying to put this uh, deal type uh, ideal together. Yeah, but I think he's much more a blunderbuss. And, you know, Trump can do whatever okay. he wants. Lighthizer has, I think, more than the others, really sort of disaggregated the issues and sees this as not just about trade balances, but about this this sort of structural set of issues. I mean, his, he's concerned about you know, the industrial job losses. He's concerned about the IP theft. And I think those are the hard, and the industrial policy being pursued in China. Those are the harder things for China to give up. Yeah. But they are the kind of things that can be more effectively addressed by real policy changes. Whereas, you know, trade deficits, okay, you know, you can drive a lot of manufacturing industry out of China and into Vietnam and India. That reduces the bilateral <laughs> U.S.-China trade deficit, but doesn't solve the overall U.S. problem. <laughs> Richard, your thoughts? Yes, and one other thing that may be talked about but not come out in the news this week is probably going to be coordination of positions relative to North Korea. That hasn't gone away, and I think that the Chinese may use uh, possible cooperation or at least following the U.S. line as a bargaining chip. 
Great having you both with us. Thank you, Jacques. Good seeing you again. Thank you for coming in. Richard, great to have you with us. Thanks, Dan. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.